0: Hello and welcome to your Over the farm gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your hosts for this week, it's me, Farmers Guardian Editor and Agri Briefing Group Editor, Ben Briggs.
1: And me, Farmers Guardian Deputy Editor, Olivia Midgley. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Subscribe through all your favourite platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure you stay up to date.
0: On the show this week... Jez Fredenberg brings part two of our special looking at what the influx of people leaving their city lives for a life in the countryside means, especially for young people. Rural areas need new blood to be sustainable longer term, but are there enough opportunities for young people to get on and thrive in the countryside and what needs to change to enable that?
1: But first, and after the drama of last week's US election, we wanted to get the lowdown on what impact President-elect Joe Biden could have, both on US agriculture and, of course, how his premiership might affect a US-UK trade deal. Our reporter Alex Black has been speaking to our man on the ground in Washington, John Wilkes.
2: The Country Land and Business Association is the only organisation solely dedicated to the protection of land and property rights and promoting the interests of the wider rural economy. We help our members work in the best interests of the land, wildlife, and the environment. Join today at www.cla.org.uk.
1: We found out on Saturday that Joe Biden's going to be the next president of the United States. Do you want to take me through where we are now with that result?
2: It's been a tumultuous six days. Joe Biden now is lined up to become the next president. There is some litigation going through the courts from the Trump side of things. Whether that will prove successful is a matter of conjecture. Time will only tell on that. The the primary focus for Joe Biden uh, during the election has been the COVID virus and even as soon as today he's announcing a a 12-person task force which will take the lead on the coronavirus after the inauguration on January the 20th, uh, which is something he, he stressed from the start and maybe something that tipped the election his way was the idea that he was going to tackle the coronavirus. President Trump held the rural areas. Uh, his policy worked there, they supported him in, in great numbers he ended up with 70 million odd votes altogether in the election uh, obviously Joe Biden's <clears throat> excuse me, up near 74 million so he's got a, a good majority and the rural areas stuck with him, there is a clear rural urban divide in, in the United States this is something which will take some fixing during the administration uh, in Biden's term. The work will be hard for him on the Hill. The Senate is still held by the Republicans after the election, and there is a, a runoff race for the Senate coming up in Georgia on January the 5th. Should the Democrats win the two seats there, that will mean they would tie in the Senate at 50 seats each with the deciding vote going to the vice president, Kamala Harris. So that's something all eyes have turned to that now. It's almost they've moved on from the uh, re- election results and they've moved on to the contest in Georgia on January the 5th.
1: And you say there that President Trump held the uh, rural areas, but what impact will a Biden presidency have on US agriculture?
2: I think it will be impacted by several, there'll be several things that will impact on it. Joe Biden has pledged to immediately rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, and that has implications for agriculture, obviously. He talks about providing farmers and ranchers with the tools that they need to implement climate-smart practices to help them meet climate goals that they will be setting. There is a commitment, too, from him to revitalise rural economies. Rural broadband is crucial for the rural sector here, in the US. President Trump has devoted a lot of time and energy to providing rural broadband or grants towards uh, in getting it installed across the breadth of the United States, particularly during uh, the run-up to the election, uh, which maybe helped his, helped his case quite a bit. I get uh, emails uh, every day, or we were getting emails every day from USDA saying that there was $10 million going into a county here in one part of the US and Twenty million dollars going into a, another area there, and I think altogether about nine over nine billion dollars has been spent so far. And I think that's something which the Biden administration will continue to do to to bring the rural areas up up to speed. Also, I think Biden will will focus on uh, and enforce antitrust regulation, particularly around the meat sector. In, in the chicken and beef side of things uh, there there's been court cases brought against the, the chicken side and i think on the beef side there's been some sort of resentment from the beef producers in relation to the margins that some of the packers the beef packers were making during the height of the pandemic and whether there was some element of collusion i don't know i mean th- th- there's definitely elements there which the government under biden will pursue I think he will try to strengthen the Affordable Care Act, the health, the health act, here to to try to benefit rural people. That's something which which he will take on, and I think to alleviate racial inequalities, inequities in, in agriculture, this is something which he's talked about that uh, he's determined to to see more uh, diversity and help for you know p- people in that sense. Uh, the other thing is is the, renew, the renewable fuel standards. That's an issue in corn country. This is the um, support, government support into biotech for the fuel sector. It's something which President Trump towards the very close to the election had nearly had a small problem there because he was still granting subsidies to small oil refineries. He changed that towards the end. So I think that is something which will also be a focus is, is renewables for President Biden.
1: A trade deal with the US is really important for the UK government as we head towards Brexit. Former President Barack Obama told us during the debate on Brexit that we'd be at the back of the queue for any trade deal with the US. President Donald Trump has been much more enthusiastic, but where will President Biden stand on this, particularly in light of his connections to Ireland and any impact of a deal on the Good Friday Agreement?
2: As everybody's aware, there is well-documented scepticism from uh, Joe Biden in relation to elements of the, some elements of the UK, the Brexit process. I think that his focus is going to be on COVID. I think that's going to be the, the, the prime focus for him. So free trade agreements and trade negotiation and things like that maybe will take a back seat in the early stages, the first six, 12 months of his presidency. The Irish caucus has become in the spotlight now, in in the ag sense that um, Joe Biden is the only ever the second ever Irish Catholic to to take the role. He's got very strong affinity with Ireland. And I think there will be the sense that Ireland will be the conduit maybe between the White House and the EU. And also Biden's stance on the EU. He he sees the EU as, as a very big market for the US, 550 million consumers. And It could be that his administration focuses more on the European Union than the focus would be on the UK. And of course, there's implications for the UK's association with the EU uh, in in that. I think there's a sense, you know, in Washington, the, the Irish caucus is very strong. They have people in key positions here within government. And um, it's almost like Ireland's the little guy and um, UK's the big guy. And, and people people tend to stand up for the little guy out of inst- instinct. That that's that's maybe how it's viewed here.
1: And the next uh, USDA Ag Secretary, do we know who that's going to be under, under the new president?
2: There's a very strong rumour that Heidi Heitkamp the former senator from North Dakota will be taking that role, Secretary of Agriculture. She lost her seat in 2018. She was a former Democratic senator for North Dakota. Lost that seat in 2018. She's a good fit. She's a, she'd be a shoe-in for this. She was actually nominated by President Trump, or not nominated. She was in the running for the Ag Secretary job back in 2016, which ultimately went to Sonny Perdue. So she offers potential to reach across the aisle. She's a vocal advocate for farmers, and and she broke away from the Democratic Party on several occasions on policy issues, things like um, genetically modified food labelling in 2015. She she went with the Republicans on that, and she was one of a few number of Democratic senators to co-sponsor the um, EPA bill, the Waters of the United States rule, which defines waters protected under the Clean Water Act which went probably against her, her, her party's wishes, but that's what she did. So she, she's even voted against, voted for, you know, voted against gun control, which probably would be something not <laughs> uh, welcomed by her in, in the Dem party. But she works, and, and, and I think she works across the aisle and, and offers a, a, a good chance for the incoming administration to be able to, to get some traction and work with the Republicans.
1: And you say about reaching across the aisle, it's been a really divisive election and arguably a really divisive uh, four years under under President Trump. Is that going to be a priority for Biden to bring people together, not just in politics, but across US society?
2: That's what he stated in his in the speech he made on, on Saturday evening. Um, he, he's, de- he's determined to try to bring people together. It's a big job. It's a big ask. Over 70 million people voted for the president. This means that he's got his work cut out to bring people together. Hopefully, as time goes on, he will be able to to do that. He is very well known for for working across the aisle in the 40-odd years that he's been in Washington, D.C. And the feeling is amongst people that perhaps there can come some coming together of the United States, which at the moment is highly divided and uh, in need of some... Reconciliation to make this country as one.
0: You're still ploughing on and so are we. Get Farmers Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through FGInsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmers Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today.
3: Last week, we looked at how COVID was causing a flight of young people from cities to rural areas and how this could be a huge opportunity for the countryside to reinvigorate rural economies. Today, we're taking it a step further and asking, how can we make the countryside somewhere young people can and want to live and also thrive? To delve into this, I'm joined by Jane Craigie and Fionn Stora-Jones. Jane, could you please tell us a little bit about your involvement with Rural Youth Project?
4: Yeah, I um, myself and my colleague Rebecca Dawes founded the Rural Youth Project two and a half years ago. And the reason for doing it is that we both travel internationally and across the UK widely. And one of the things that that you see everywhere in rural places is the panic when young people flee those rural areas for other lives. And we wanted to understand why young people were leaving rural places, um, what kept them or encouraged them to return, and what we need to do in rural places to encourage young people to stay and build their lives. Because we know if they leave, The services go with them. And we wanted to understand how um, the UK compares and contrasts with other countries uh, all over the world, because that gives you um, an understanding of the psyche of young people as well, and how other communities are dealing with the same challenge.
3: And Fee, what's your involvement with this subject around young people and the countryside?
5: Thanks, first of all, for inviting me onto the podcast. So I uh, was and am a rural young person. I suppose it uh, depends on how you define that. I grew up in rural Wales my family farms in in Mid Wales. Um, But currently I'm based in Brussels and I split my time between those two places. And for a very long time, I've split my time between more urban areas and the family farm and my rural uh, community. So I suppose... uh, I have lived experience of being a rural young person but I'm also involved with uh, the Rural Youth Project so I uh, sit on the steering committee of the Rural Youth Project and um, the work that they are doing has inspired me to look to do something similar in Wales. So at the moment I'm currently running uh, a research project. Um, supported by the Henry Plum Foundation looking into the needs and aspirations of rural young people in Wales. You know we are seeing rural young people leave um, those areas um, in search of work, in search of studies and that panic that comes with seeing them leave rural areas. Um, I was seeing a lot of people talking about this and so I was looking into well actually what do we know about these young people Um, and the the research to date in Wales specifically is is quite fragmented. Um, I've been very lucky to pull experts in to help me to understand the needs of these young people um, and understand what they want to see happen because rural young people are some of the most innovative um, people and they also are full of solutions for these challenges. And so the research is really to gather data, to gather what what people think, but also to to ask them what do they want to see change and
3: how they think that change should happen. And I think Jane, from what I understand, you've already been looking at that as part of the Rural Youth Project. What have you learned so far from having those conversations with young people about what draws them to the countryside and what they actually want in the countryside?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we've we've um, surveyed young people um, throughout the, the lifetime of the project for the same reasons that Fee mentioned. You know, there's a lack of information out there about what young people need and want. Um, but we've also brought them together. So one of our core activities is uh, Ideas Festivals. And that's a great way over three days to really hear and understand what young people feel, believe and need, um, and also to share their frustrations. Um, The reasons that they stay, um, they're actually really positive reasons, the reasons that, that young people stay or return to rural places. And it's driven by something that is fundamental, which is their love of place and the community, so yes, there's often a counter frustration, and Fee will probably explain, you know, when she went back during COVID. Um, there's the frustration that returns from being in a place that you know so well, with people that you know so well, and, and still being viewed as a young person, but it is that love of place, and um and with that comes things like responsibility to your family and responsibility maybe to a farm, but it's love that that keeps them there. Um and they, the things that they want to see improved, they want to be listened to. So in, in our survey work that we've done, we routinely come back to a percentage of only 13% of young people feel they have a say in their local community. That needs to change um, because young people are the lifeblood. And that's not just about them being able to earn money and being able to do things because they're physically fit. It's also about the ideas that they bring um, to a community. You know, we can all remember when we were 17, 18, we were going to change the world. We should harness that change the world mentality in rural places because it's those ideas that, that do different, that think different, that makes progress and positive progress and if you tie that in with the love of place that's really powerful
3: that's an interesting one because to me it seems like there's a bit of a a crossover there because often um, when we need like new ideas they might come from people who have never been in that place in, in the first place kind of thing so people who are perhaps have always been urban dwellers and that's something that we talked about um from the research last week was that a lot of the people in london a lot of the young people in london actually want to move out to the countryside so a lot of them are going to be people who've who who do not have that love of a particular place and might be coming for the first time somewhere but they would presumably have like completely different um ideas and and skills and everything so how important is it that the countryside is also somewhere that welcomes in people that it hasn't kind of experienced before possibly like a real diversity of people
4: yeah i think that's a really good question jez and i think we are going to see that outflow from from the city um which and i think it's a balance any community needs balance doesn't it it needs a balance of ages it needs a balance of experiences it needs a balance of of income streams so it's about balance um, I was talking to Neil Hesseltine who's chair of the Yorkshire Dales National Park for a podcast earlier this week and um, he was saying that they really welcome young people into the Dales from outside and from within but having you know a proportion maybe 50-50 of people that understand that landscape, they understand the culture of that community and what makes it the place that it is, it's important to have that foundation of locals because local knowledge as we know when we travel the world for example local knowledge is 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 fundamental to that sense of place um but i think there is real power in bringing people in and that may not necessarily just be to to live it could be to work um a couple of years ago we went to the netherlands and and they are they view community and uh, urban rural divide in a really positive way and we went to see a, a, a communications agency that are based in a rural town. And people come out from the city it, it, the reverse flow to come and work in this fantastic creative agency in the heart of a rural place. Now, I think it's that kind of thinking. So we don't think, you know, it doesn't have to be permanent. Young people can maybe come out to the countryside to work, but go back to their urban homes in the evening. Or it could be that they come out to a rural place to build a life and to build a business. You know, there's so much opportunity for micro businesses when you've got good digital connectivity to flourish in, in local places. And, and I don't think I think it's really important not to forget that for a young person, a micro business that is generating them twenty five thousand pounds a year um, in the overall scheme of the economy, it's small fry. But for their lives, that 20, 25000 five thousand pound income is is really, really valuable because it allows them independence and to build their life.
3: Fee, does does a lot of this chime with you and your experience? Definitely, and probably with many of my friends that have
5: moved away from um, the rural area where they grew up, whether that be permanently or or temporarily. I suppose what I would love to see change, uh, the attitude shift, not that young people are um, abandoning rural areas and moving away from them, but actually that we celebrate that they leave, but we're also supporting them to leave in a way that means that they will come back and with them bring experience and
3: skill from elsewhere. I mean, that's, that's the thing, you know, what, what is really, really going to draw, like, young people back? Because, I mean, from my own experience, it seems to me that, like, culture, for example, is, like, a massive part of it the culture in the countryside is very different to the culture in the city and there's just not the diversity and opportunity to to interact often with progressive ideas and people from different backgrounds and things like that in the countryside so what I mean what do you think Fee what would draw you back to the countryside that's such a difficult question uh
5: to answer and I suppose it's very personal for, <laughs> for each individual that sense of place that Jane mentioned is so massive to me and we have a word in Welsh which means you can't translate it uh, exactly but it's this longing for a place and I suppose my heart has has always been and will always be in Wales but I suppose my brain is 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 more um How do I say this? More at the moment, interested in learning, perhaps about elsewhere. Always with, you know, the thought in mind that I would bring those experiences back to Wales. Um, And I suppose it's as our lives evolve, we as individuals want and need different things to to enjoy. I think what we've seen happen again as a result of the pandemic is this opening up of opportunities online Um, so we're all joining book festivals or uh, gigs online whether we're living in an urban or a rural area what is perhaps making it more difficult for a lot of rural young people to join those events is digital connectivity and we know from the research undertaken by the Rural Youth Project that it's simply just not good enough and so I would say for people to be able to work from home in a rural area for people to be able to enjoy um, you know vast opportunities cultural opportunities online that digital infrastructure it, it really is a priority
3: yeah absolutely i think that's it's absolutely critical isn't it just going back to the whole culture thing though and intellectual side of it it's like how do we how do we bring that um you know you talked about your your heart being in the rural but your head being in the urban how how can like rural areas capture that more like intellectual uh kind of desire of young people what what do you think can happen then jane maybe that's something you want to come in on as well
4: yeah i think there's a few things i think um in a lot of your you're absolutely right jez in in rural places there there's a certain way those communities um act and behave there is a culture and it's a really important question um because i think a lot of rural communities are very patriarchal Um, And and actually, that's what young people butt against. And I think the the current Z generation are particularly, you know, they have I love um, I love that sense of can do that, that they have. I love the fact that they're grounded in 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 values and in their sense of purpose, why they are here on this planet. But that's very counterintuitive to a patriarchal society, that they want the land to be looked after, that they want to be listened to, and and that their place is important. So they need freedom, and and rural communities aren't very free. They're quite restricted in, in in how they think and how they behave. Not everywhere, but I think as a generality that we've seen with the Rural Youth Project. I think there's a couple of things that we can do. One is to listen. You know, to create an environment together where young people feel that they are listened to and older people feel that there's a real value in listening to young people, in teaching them skills that, for example, on the Outer Hebrides, teaching them how to make Harris Tweed because it's such an iconic brand for the Outer Hebrides. So how do you get that intergenerational learning into really um, making that heritage long lasting? Um, Same with farms, you know, the heritage of the farm, the history of that family farm is important. So I think working within generations to create that freedom. Um, I think also uh, listening to young people about how they want to communicate what they want from a community, what they want from the place, what is important to them. And, And you'll find that there's a real meeting of minds, that everybody in the community wants to see a communal space that's vibrant and has lots of activities, for example. So I think it's creating that environment where people listen Um, There's a real push here in Scotland to get more young people onto boards of organisations and local communities and and local councils, which I think is absolutely right. But we've got to think about it from the perspective of of a young people, a crusty board meeting where, you know, everybody turns up in their suits and and they have to be there. And, you know, there's a formulaic approach to the way that, that that happens that doesn't appeal to a young person. So it's thinking about how do you engage them in the way you do things. And one of the really big ones that I think is, is important and and part of building what is essential, which is a cool vibe. You know, you talk about the intellectual um, side of things. Um, it's that energy that comes with coolness of doing different that, that young people love. And I think a really key way of doing that could could and should be through business. We know from our research that young people... Love a cool business so with good marketing one that offers them flexibility on how and when they work Uh, you know the Patagonia model of of if if you if if the surf's up and you feel like going surfing go and do that young people love that flexibility so I think we really need to need to rethink how those rural business operate so
3: Jane are there other places around the world that you've come across that do do that coolness in rural areas really well you know, and they also like, involve young people in that?
4: Yeah, there are. Um, I mean, a, a, a couple of examples. In, in Finland, they're really good at um, embracing young people, and it's on all sorts of levels. They, they see the community as um, multi-age and multi-skilled. One example is, is a community where the local council has seen a real need to create uh, housing, as a fundal, fundamental part of bringing young people back, we know it's an age-old problem for young people. They can't afford a house, so they end up living in the, you know, the, the, the dregs of the accommodation that they can find locally. And there's one, one little community where they're putting up very small space homes. And it, it, they, they're for grannies, they call them, and they're for young people. So they they make them available as rental or purchase um, and they look super cool. So I think part of it is making the community and the place look and feel cool. And these this modular housing has been a really good part of this. And they give them outdoor space. So gardens, all of these houses have gardens. Um, and, And there's a vibrant community there that's based on farming and forestry. And then giving people good places to live and also making community... Um, infrastructure available for for example micro food businesses helps to create a place for people to do business and to create you know cool food products or cool forestry products so Finland's been really good at it Um, I know in in Australia they've had a, a harrowing time rurally and in the outback with bushfires and with drought. And they see the key to, um, to the future being putting in super fast broadband. So if you want to retain a young person in a community, they will be really imaginative about how they can earn that income. And that could be by being a gaming software developer, or it could be being um, somebody that, that mends Land Rovers, or, so it's, it, but it's giving the tools, the wherewithal, the fundamentals for that, that, that rurality to allow the ideas to blossom and come to life. And, and Fee mentioned earlier broadband, it's absolutely fundamental. You know, 99% of the young people we survey say they cannot live where they do without good broadband.
3: What, what would you both say, and I often ask this of people who come on, if you could march into number 10 and say, you know, this is what we really need to happen from government, what would you, what would you both be saying that needed to happen?
4: Well, we're already starting to push the Scottish government with who, and and might I add, we've got a very open door. Uh, We've been working with Marie Goujon and some of the other ministers in Scotland and, and we're currently discussing um, emulating what is, what happens in New South Wales, where they have a a minister for rural youth with a responsibility for rural youth. So I would ask Westminster to replicate what we hope will happen in Scotland. Um, and have a, a policy for rural youth, and a minister that represents rural youth. It's how can you represent a part of our communities if if they don't, if there isn't political responsibility for for that policy area. So that's one thing. I think we need to have planning permission that is pro youth it's not just about pro rural it's about pro youth and understanding what space young people need to live and work and that could be the combination of a workplace and a living space it could be the concept of creating r- rural hubs and that doesn't you know that could be related to planning permission for a business as well so if you're putting up a new business premises why not put up four or five new start homes with that in a rural place that happens urbanly why can't it happen in a rural place and then i think there's a really good opportunity to post-covid but also longer term startup grants for young people that have something that is really embedded in and wedded to that local community and that local economy support them or businesses that will employ young people um, give them some Tax breaks or startup grants or something that will incentivize that cool business to start to establish and thrive in rural places.
5: Fear, is there anything you wanted to add? I think many would argue that young people are the thread that binds together the fabrics of rural communities, but I'm not sure how the thread will continue to be able to do that unless we perhaps look to change the fabric and how it binds together. And so in order for rural places to become um, youth friendly or, or, or driven by um, changes that young people want to see happen, we have to have young voices, not only heard, but delivering change so what's happening in in australia is fantastic we have a commissioner for future generations in wales um, and as part of um, her work she recently called for young people to be working with and in um, the civil service in wales more directly to bring their expertise to policy making and i suppose it's about very much youth-led decision making and whether i would be um, storming in to number 10 or if I'd be storming in actually also to my local authority because I think for change to happen it needs to be happening at all levels um, and until young people feel comfortable and able to uh, have an opinion that is considered other um, they have to believe that their voice matters and their voice is heard and so I might be optimistic but I think that
3: is where change needs to happen. And of course your like you said your research is one one step towards that so how can people get involved in that fee So currently we have a survey open people can find that
5: on my Twitter account which is Storer. and we're also running a series of focus groups um, and through the survey people can choose to Um, be part of a focus group and also I'd welcome if if young people want to share any comments or suggestions that they have uh, with me directly uh, through social media as well. I really want this to be research that's kind of owned by young people um, and used by young people. So um, yeah, I welcome any contributions.
3: Awesome, thank you. And Jane, can people still get involved in Rural Youth Project and whether they are young people themselves or whether maybe they're um, they're farmers and landowners who want to do something for young people, how can they get involved?
4: yeah they definitely can get involved i mean we are we're creating all sorts of partnerships with all sorts of organizations all over the world um, so it 's about creating a, a force with a common focus so anybody that wants to get involved with us wants access to our research is very very welcome for young people themselves we're just um, we're just completing a, a rural change makers program and we're hoping to repeat that using the funding that we have, which is from leader. Um, so if young people want to, try to, to sign up for the Rural Changemakers programme, that will focus on their leadership skills, their activism skills and enterprise skills. So there's an opportunity there for them. We're running regular ideas cafes where we have maybe a couple of young people who've set up businesses talking about their journey. Uh, so people are very welcome to join that. And then we're hopeful that we will have um, our third ideas festival, running somewhere in rural Scotland on the 10th of July for three days next year. So fingers crossed that will go ahead. So if anybody wants to um, to, to sign up for that, we're hoping that early next year, depending on COVID, we can start to open up um, registrations or applications to come to the Ideas Festival. The website is ruralyouthproject.com and then on social channels, channels, we are at RYP2018. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you both. I think we've got a
3: lot of food for thought there for young people. And let's hope this is the beginning of uh, something more exciting, vibrant, and youthful for rural areas.
0: Well, that's it for this week. And we hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of all the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. Until next week, from us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening, we hope you stay safe and well, and goodbye for now.